Wow, looks like the Christmas story. Good morning. I can't believe I'm up here. Randall asked me to preach and I said, are you sure? What if I say something I shouldn't? He said, oh, well, I trust you. <laughs> Wrong answer. I got to thinking, what can, I, what can I talk about and make everybody mad? Oh, I know, let's talk about government. That'll make everybody mad, won't it? Uh, he said, no, talk about something that you, you're passionate about. And I said, well, okay, I'm going to talk about government. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really sad, I think, the state of affairs that we find ourselves in in the United States, that people can't talk to each other, they can't work together, they can't seem to get things done. And uh, it's, uh, it's a problem. I think it's a problem for our culture, for our country. Uh, and we've got to find a way forward. I think it is incumbent on Christians, genuine Christians, people like you and me, to do something about this. So I want us to talk about government in general. And then I want to talk... I want us to talk about things that we might be able to do that would make a difference. Uh, we, we call our government a democracy. Uh, it's really not. It's really a republic. We elect representatives to speak for us uh, in the government setting. I grew up with a saying, maybe you've heard this somewhere along the way, democracy is a terrible form of government but all the others are so much worse. Well, I think I could agree with that. Watching democracy play out is definitely messy, and it requires us to account for the needs, the desires, the interests of people who may be like us and may be not at all like us. And yet somehow we're all trying to work together in this same country to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. I have also heard it said that the best form of government is a benevolent king. Well, that sounds good too. The idea that someone could be in charge of an entire country and make decisions based on the best needs of the people that he rules over. I mean, that would be nice, wouldn't it, if, there, if you could just eliminate all of the, the, the trouble that you go through to be a democracy, and you could just let somebody else make those decisions if you knew they would make them in the best interests of everybody that lived in the nation. It sounds good. The problem with benevolent democracies is they don't last very long. They cease to be benevolent pretty quickly. Because there is something about the way the world works that makes it just almost impossible to do something good for very long. Uh, so what would you prefer? Would you rather live in a democracy? Or would you rather live under a benevolent kingship? Or maybe, just maybe, it's possible to do both. 
So, let's go to the Christmas story, shall we? When Israel looked back in their history, like a thousand BC, they looked to the person that they considered to be the greatest king they ever had. Do you know who he is? King David, absolutely. He unified all of the 12 tribes. He ruled over them with justice and equity. Even though he made some mistakes along the way, he still was kind of the, the high point of the kingship for Israel. And uh, David has a wonderful, sparkling reputation because of that. Things kind of went downhill after that. The kingdom divided. Eventually, the people of Israel were carried off into captivity in Babylon. Uh, things didn't go well. But the prophets had a vision for the future. They could see what God was going to do and what he intended to do as time went on. They believed that God was going to send an ideal ruler of the line and the, 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 the house and the lineage of David. And that he was going to be able to do even better than David did. That he would be able to create a kingdom where there would be justice and mercy and righteousness and right decisions would be made. And it would influence all the kingdoms of the world. Everyone would look to Jerusalem and to the ideal king who was to come. That's what the Christmas story is all about. And so we're going to look for just a second at Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. I'm just going to bounce around scripture. You can read it off the screen if you want to, or if you've got your Bible with you, feel free to look with me. Uh, we recognize this because we, we hear it at Christmas time over and over again. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. The work of governing is difficult. The idea of putting something on your shoulders is not something that sounds very appealing to me. If you break your shoulders, it really hurts. The idea of having to carry a burden on my shoulder, a backpack, is not a pleasant thought to me. The idea of having to carry the weight of the government is not a pleasant thought either. And yet, this child that is to be born, the son who is given, the government is going to be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establish and upholding it with justice and righteousness. Isn't that what we want out of our government? We want justice. We want righteousness. And so many times we don't see justice. We don't see righteousness in secular government. He will do it from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. God's going to take responsibility for making this happen. What a wonderful promise. It's the promise we celebrate every year at Christmas. And yet we look around and we don't really see that, do we? The time leading up to Jesus was a time of messianic fervor among the Jews. And there were a lot of would-be messiahs. In Acts chapter 5, we read about a couple of them. Uh, their names are mentioned anyway. Theudas, Judas the Galilean. You probably never heard of them. They gathered followers. They proclaimed themselves to be the Messiah. The Romans found out about it and had them killed and their followers dispersed. 
Some people thought that John the baptizer was going to be the Messiah. And what happened to him? He got arrested and beheaded. And what came of his movement? Nothing. Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 3. There are those strange things that start the Christmas story that we call genealogies. And we look at them and we go, why in the world is that in there? That's a boring thing. And yet it's not boring if you're looking for a king who's of the house and lineage of David because that's what qualifies someone to be Messiah, King, the Anointed One. Matthew and Luke are both making the point that Jesus qualified to be God's Messiah. Jesus is addressed in the gospel sometimes by random people as the son of David. We normally think of him as, as being teacher or rabbi or son of God or something like that. But very often he's addressed as the son of David. Did that ever strike you as strange? It did me for a long time. Uh, people like the Canaanite woman addressed him as son of David. Two blind men in Matthew 20 addressed him as son of David. The crowds, as Jesus is making his way down the Mount of Olives on the donkey on Palm Sunday, shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Huh. Maybe he really is the promised Messiah. It certainly looked that way until something unexpected happened. The same thing happened to him that happened to Thutis and Judas the Galilean, and John the Baptist. He was arrested, turned over to Pilate. Pilate tries to question him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus won't even talk to him. Finally, Pilate is pressured hard enough that he decides he's going to crucify him. And what does he write on the placard over the cross? This is Jesus, king of the Jews. I always thought that was strange. And yet, Jesus was the king of the Jews. That's what he was crucified for. And he didn't deny it. Jesus, like others before him and after him, met a violent death for claiming to be the promised Messiah. The others were relegated to the ash heap of history, but Jesus wasn't. What's the difference? Why have you heard of Jesus and you've never heard of Judas the Galilean? Because something different happened with Jesus. He kept showing up. He kept appearing to his disciples. As Luke says in Acts chapter 1 verse 3, After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. I thought the whole idea of the kingdom of God was dead. Apparently not. Apparently there is a kingdom. Apparently Jesus is ruling and reigning over this kingdom. Paul writes and helps to explain what, we're, what the kingdom of God is, what it means that Jesus is alive and is reigning over God's kingdom. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, an ancient hymn that Paul quotes in his letter. 
You're familiar with it, but I'm going to read it anyway, and I want you to just think about this from the standpoint of Jesus being king. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. You know, we hear so much about politicians using their position to their own advantage. And they get away with it more often than not. Jesus did not use his position or his power to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The death of Jesus, King of the Jews. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every knee should bow. Every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's the way a Jew would say something about he's reigning over everything, everyone, the entirety. And every tongue should acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the Roman world, there was one person who was Lord. Oh, the, the, the title might be used as we would use Mr., but when you said someone was Lord, there was one person who was Lord. Caesar was Lord. These are fighting words, and every tongue acknowledged that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is greater than Caesar. He is higher than Caesar. He is the one who is to be worshipped. He is the one that all knees should bow to. In Ephesians 1, Paul makes some additional comments that help us to understand this idea that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is reigning. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. The Jews had a very simple understanding of what history was like. There was this present evil age, and then there was the glorious age to come when God ruled directly through his Son. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. And suddenly, we enter into the picture. We need to remember that the head of the church is not Pastor Randall. The head of the church is not the deacon team. The head of the church is Jesus Christ. And our knees should bow to him. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. If Jesus is king now, then the kingdom has begun 
even if it is not yet fulfilled. Jesus reigns over God in heaven, reigns with God in heaven. He reigns over his church right now. He reigns over everyone, you and me, if we are the ones who bow the knee to him and claim him as our Savior and Lord. His kingdom is a greater priority than any earthly kingdom and requires us to give him priority. That's something I think Christians in our day are forgetting. They think that problems can be solved by secular government. And it may be that there are some things that can be helped if secular government gets on board. But if Jesus is king, if Jesus is ruling, and if we are submitting ourselves to him, that's really not the point. The point is, are we living under the lordship and the kingship of Jesus? Some in our day are saying that Christians should make government Christians. And I would say that Christians, Christianity, the church, always loses when they make a deal with secular government. Constantine was the first to do that in the fourth century. He basically made a deal with the church. We will recognize you. We will stop persecuting you. We will make you the official religion of the Roman Empire as long as you will do things our way. And the church said, what, no persecution? That sounds great. We like that. And so instead of dying for Christ, they decided they would rather live for the Roman emperor. They made a deal with the devil. The church has continued over history to make deals with the devil. And the church always loses when that happens. Should Christians expect the government to do anything for them? You know, we should learn a lesson from the Christians in other countries. Uh, 2002, I got to visit China. We were the guests of the China Christian Council, which was the official Christian church within the Republic of China. Uh, it was interesting. You did things their way. You only had certain places that you could meet. You only had certain times that you were allowed to meet. You had to follow all the rules of the Chinese government. And uh, it was not a very happy, happy, happy place in that sense. The people who considered themselves to be genuine Christians, for the most part, said, we don't want a part of a state church. We're going to meet in homes. If we have to move locations, we'll move locations. If somebody comes to persecute us, we'll find a way around it. And that's what they did. The church in China is strong, but you won't hear about it because it's underground. They made a deal with the devil. In Iran, it's illegal to be a Christian. If you proclaim Christ, you can be arrested. You can be put in prison. And the biggest revival in the world today is going on in Iran. Brother Stephen that we saw in our video a minute ago works with people in Azerbaijan. Uh, he tried to explain to me what it was like to start a church in Azerbaijan. 
there are 98% Muslim, I believe he told me, or 99%, it's like all Muslims, except there are a few Christians scattered here and there, and there are a few churches, not very many at all. But if you want to start a church, you have to have 50 people who will sign on the dotted line, I'm a Christian, I want to be a part of this church. Well, first of all, that's a lot of people in a country like Azerbaijan. And then, to make matters worse, the government says, oh, and of course you have to have your own building. You can't rent something, you have to buy something or build something. Well, getting 50 people together and getting the funds together to build a church building is virtually impossible. So by making the pretense of it's okay to be a Christian uh, a possibility, they've effectively shut down ministry. So what does it have to do? It has to go underground. When we think the government can solve our problems as Christians, we are sadly mistaken because eventually it will come back to bite us. Should Christianity be the official religion of the United States? I say emphatically no. Baptists have always advocated for a level playing field where everyone is free to choose his own religion or no religion. If our religion and our faith in Christ is not enough to persuade people, then there's something wrong. The government will never persuade people to be genuine Christians. Baptists re view religion as a matter of conscious, conscience. I'm sorry, let me start that one again. Baptists view religion as a matter of conscience, not coercion. The First Amendment provides that Congress makes no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. I think Baptists have forgotten how important that is for us being able to meet here on a Sunday morning with no government interference and worship God according to the dictates of our conscience. That is a blessing beyond belief. And to compromise that because we think we would be better off to have Christian, Christianity in the public schools or Christianity in the public sphere in some sort of an official way is, is just mind-boggling to me. Um, I heard this somewhere, and unfortunately I think I agree with it. I don't want my grandchildren going to school and having to choose their pronouns. I don't want that. Neither do I want them forced to look at a poster of the Ten Commandments while a teacher tries to explain what thou shalt not commit adultery means. When I first heard that, I laughed. And I thought, oh me. We think we'd be better off by infusing things with Christianity, and yet that's trying to get the government to do the job of the church. That is our job as parents, our job as Christians, as members of the church to do. It is not the job of the government to do that. And I dare say if someone were trying to do that with the Koran, Koran, did I say that right? Koran, Koran, Koran. You know what I mean. Um, or the Book of Mormon. 
we would have a hissy fit, wouldn't we? That's why it's important that the government stay out of religion and we not abandon what we've got. Do Christians have a responsibility toward the government? Absolutely. Jesus said it this way, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Yes, we have a responsibility to government. We have taxes to pay. Pay your taxes. If you want to serve in the military, serve in the military. But there are things that God demands of us that are even more important than those. And we need to be faithful to do that as well. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 13, 1 through 7 about the responsibility that we have toward the government. And remember, Paul is writing this to the Roman church, the church that exists in Rome, where Caesar is very present. And this is what he says. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. That's a tough thing to imagine. I think about our friends who have come from Venezuela to escape an oppressive government. Governments that exist have been established by God. That's hard to imagine. Think about the Christian brothers and sisters that we have in Russia and the government that's been established there. They exist because they have been established by God? Yes. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear for the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. I read that and I think about the early Christians as we read about them in the book of Acts. Sometimes they decided that they needed to obey God rather than men. And they did that because they had a higher priority. They had King Jesus that they had bowed the knee to. And he was ahead of Caesar in the pecking order. Do what is right, you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If you owe revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Those are hard words. Sometimes our government doesn't feel very honorable. And yet we are not supposed to go against it unless it comes into conflict with what we are supposed to be doing for Christ. We are expected to unite around Christ, especially within the church. We're not supposed to unite around the good old USA, as wonderful as it is. 
We're not supposed to unite around a political party, regardless of which one you like or don't like. One of the things I've noticed is when I read the priorities that we have in Scripture, things that we're supposed to do, I can't line them up with anybody's political party. They might be right on one point and wrong on the next one. But if King Jesus is the one I submit to, then I'm required to go with his priorities, not the priorities of Republicans or Democrats. This is where I get to meddling. As someone who's read the Bible for a hundred years or more, uh, I have a fairly good understanding of what biblical priorities are. are. And I made a list of things that I think are biblical priorities and they're important. And they don't align with anybody's political party. Which is what makes it difficult, I think, as a Christian in the United States these days. The first thing that I wrote down was that we are supposed to value the dignity of every human life. That would include the unborn. That would include women who are carrying the unborn. That would include women in general. That would include men, white, black, brown, whatever color they may be. It might even include white supremacists. As distasteful as I might find that. Uh, it includes members of the LGBTQ community. And those are letters that we don't like to say in church because we're uncomfortable with that. But God gave the breath of life to every human creature and we are to respect and show dignity and value to every person regardless of whether we like their lifestyle or not. All right, here's another one to make you mad. God created this world gave it to Adam and said, okay, take care of this. This is your environment. This is where you live. If you don't take care of it, you're not going to have a place to live. If we want to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, our kids and grandkids, we've got to take care of our environment. Everybody deserves clean air to breathe. We need to do whatever it takes to make that happen. It's not something to fight about to gain political points. It's a necessity if we are going to obey King Jesus. One of the things I read about in the Old Testament over and over again is God's love for the poor. As someone who's been tremendously blessed, I don't really understand what it's like to not know where my next meal is coming from. But it's one of those things that we as Christians need to be concerned about. And we need to address the needs of the poor. Those who don't have the same advantages in life that we have. 
We need to care for the immigrant. What goes on on our southern border is a tragedy. And I think the thing that makes me the maddest is that neither of our political parties want to address it. They're content to just let it exist. When I see people who are doing something about it, they are caring for the immigrant. We are called to care for the immigrant. That's a priority of King Jesus. When Jesus was asked, what's the first commandment? What's the top priority? He said very quickly, love God with all your heart. And the second one is like it. Don't miss it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The other night in our house-to-house group, we were studying out of Luke 6. And as I was preparing to talk about that and ask questions for that, I'm going, you know, I'd forgotten this is in there. Do you ever find things in the Bible and go, gosh, I forgot that was there? Well, I do. And uh, this particular thing, I read it and I thought, you know, we've been told by our news media that there is no solution for the problems and the divisions that our country face. But that's not true. Jesus told us what the problem, but Jesus told us what we were supposed to do about it. And this is what he says, love your enemies. The idea of loving our enemies is not something we want to do. We would rather rail against them on social media. We would rather perpetuate the problem. We'd rather sit in our little bubble and just let the people that we like and agree with tell us what to think. If you're going to love your enemy, you have to talk to them. You have to find out what they think, what they believe, and why they think that. You have to show them respect. I firmly believe that there is a solution to the divisions in our country. If Christians will practice our faith and do what our master told us to do, if we love our enemies, we can turn it around. The last thing I wrote down was this. We need to share the gospel about Jesus. Acts 1, 7 and 8. He said to them, Is it not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority? In other words, don't get hung up about how long Jesus rules from heaven and when heaven and earth will be reunited and the fullness of the kingdom will come into being. Don't worry about that. God will take care of that in his own good time. That's up to him. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I can't do that. I can't be a witness. Yes, you can. Yes, I can.
because God has given us his Holy Spirit and he has given us experiences with Christ and we can tell other people what he's done for us. We can do that. We must do that. He tells them to take it to the place where they live, Jerusalem, Judea. He says, go to the places that you don't like, like Samaria. Go to the ends of the earth. And to make it even easier for us, God has brought the world to us. Walk around Plano. The world lives here. The world's up and down the bike trails. They're in the rec centers. They're our neighbors. They're our potential friends. That's what God's called us to do. Talk about Jesus. Tell people what he's done for us. We can solve the divisions. We can solve them if we do what King Jesus has told us to do. Pray with me. God, sometimes I think we just miss the point. We just go from day to day letting things happen the way they always have. God, forgive us. God, I pray that you would help us to understand what it is that you want from each of us, what you want from our church, how you want us to live in submission to the King of kings and Lord of lords. God, lead us, guide us, help us do better. Give us the grace to love our enemies and to show respect for every person that you've created. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.